welcome to the podcast for St. Andrew's Community United Methodist Church, a loving, caring, overcoming community of faith where our mission is making disciples of Jesus Christ. So the church of my youth does not exist anymore. The building is still there, 1755 North Meridian on the north side of Oklahoma City, but it's not St. John's United Methodist Church anymore. It's not the gathering place for that. In fact, it's now a Baptist church. St. John still exists in the sense that there are many of us that attended there and served there and learned there and gave there, but we have been scattered to different places so that it does not exist. Probably about five or so years before the church closed its doors, we decided we were going to have a youth group reunion. We wanted to come together. We wanted to walk through the building, and we laughed, and we sang, and we shared stories, and some of us brought our spouses or our kids so we could meet each other since we had scattered so much. But of all the stories we shared, I remember Terry's story the most. Terry had grown up kind of in the quintessential suburban life. His dad was a doctor. His mom was a professional. He didn't lack for anything in his life, but he didn't go to church. He was about 6'4", and he loved playing basketball, didn't get as much playing time in high school as he wanted, and a friend invited him, hey, why don't you come play basketball with our church team? And so he did. Now, league rules said if you played for our church, you had to attend church, And so it was that he began coming to MYF. Some of y'all remember MYF, Methodist Youth Fellowship. Now they all have fancy names. We just called it MYF. He began to make some new friends. Things began to happen. He started attending church. And so when he was at this reunion and he started sharing his memories, he started off by saying, Those of y'all that were here, y'all remember that girl that had a crush on me. A girl that was far too young for him to date had this massive crush, and he said she was such a pest. She used to call me all the time. She used to bake cookies and bring them to my house. I didn't know how to get rid of her, and so I finally did the only thing I felt like I could do. I married her. And we all remembered how Susan had followed Terry around, and we knew it was just a matter of time before she wore through his defenses. (laughs) He said, but that's not my greatest memory of the church. He said, my greatest memory of the church is the Sunday that I got up out of my seat, and I walked down the aisle, and I knelt at the altar, and I gave my life to Jesus. It changed my life. Uh, it, it changed my life. I was not only now given the promise of spending eternity with Jesus, he transformed who I was as a person. Brothers and sisters, when God is creating the church, the church is a gathering of spiritually transformed people. Each one of us that is a follower of Jesus has a story of spiritual transformation, and frankly, I never really tire of hearing them. History is replete with stories of God's power breaking through the darkness of people's lives so that they come to know who Christ is. For example, John Newton, 
Y'all know John Newton, whether you can remember him right now or not. You, you know John Newton. He lived a few centuries back. Guy was a wreck, had a horrible life. He was a horrible person. I mean, if, if you ever looked at someone and thought, that, <laughs> that is a really horrible person, he fit the category. Of all the things that he did, the one that he's well known for is he worked on a slave trade ship. Went to Africa, helped bring Africans in chains over to the newly formed United States so they could be sold into slavery. But somehow in the midst of all the darknesses in his life, the gospel broke through. He gave his life to Christ. You may not know his story, but you've sung his testimony. Because in writing about it, Writing about God's grace, he said, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. How about Nikki Cruz? Do y'all know Nikki Cruz's story? I learned it when I was a child. He was born in Puerto Rico. And he had a family that practiced pagan religion. His mom actually called him son of Satan. When he was 15, his parents shipped him to New York City to live with family. He quickly fell into the violence of a street gang. And his penchant for violence saw him become the warlord of the Mau Mau's. And evidently, he was so violent, he eventually became the president He's walking down the street one day and there's this man who feels called of God to witness of the grace of Christ to street gangs. And he walks up and he starts talking to the Mau Mau's and he tells Nikki, God can forgive all your sin. And Nikki's response was to slap him and threaten to kill him. A few days go by, they meet again. Once again, the Pastor Dave Wilkerson says, you know, Jesus Christ will forgive every sin you've ever committed. And once again, Nikki Cruz slapped him and threatened to kill him. Dave Wilkerson must have been praying for more boldness. But as it was, he rented an auditorium because he invited all the street gangs to come. He wanted to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. The Mau Mau's came, and he asked them to take the offering. They thought that was a great idea. They would threaten people, you need to give more, because they had intended to steal everything that people gave. When they walked backstage and they saw the exit door, Nikki said, no, let's give them the money. And at the end of the service that night, when an invitation to receive Christ was given, Nikki Cruz was among the first to bend his knee and confess his sin and give his life to Christ. Other Mau Mau's joined him in that the next day they got up and they took their baseball bats and their chains and their switchblades and they gave them to the police. He went on to Bible college. He became a pastor, walking the same streets he grew up in in New York City, sharing the good news of what Christ can do. Stories of amazing transformation, but when we look at history, probably none is more well-known than the one we find in Acts chapter 9. If you would give your attention to this reading from God's Word, and I will warn you, it's longer than what I usually read. Meanwhile, 
Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless. For they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, Go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterwards, he ate some food and regained his strength. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. So the three examples that I have shared this morning... John Newton, Nicky Cruz, and Saul are all very dramatic testimonies. I suspect that most of us here do not have such a dramatic testimony. Perhaps ours is more like Terry's was, that we didn't necessarily grow up in church, but when we started going to church, the good news of the gospel got through to us and made a profession of faith. But the thing that I would share with all of us is, it doesn't matter what our story is. All of us stand in need of grace. All of us are sinners, whether those sins are culturally considered small sins or whether they're considered the big sins. All of us have committed sins, and we find ourselves in the place of a need for transformation. 
Some of you may know Paul Cunningham. Paul's the pastor over at Westmore Covenant Church. You know, the flock that rocks, you drive by it. We know Paul and I have been friends for a long time. We used to work day spring youth camp together. And if you know Paul's testimony, you know it is one of those dramatic testimonies. He was uh, affectionately called Pagan Paul. (laughs) And he would tell you that he was a cocaine addict. And God saved him. I asked him one day, I said, how did you beat your addiction to cocaine? There's a very small percentage of people that actually beat that addiction, and he won't even blink. He said, God delivered me from it. And you you find yourself when you're working with people saying, yeah, you know, my testimony just doesn't measure up to that one. (laughs) And yet Paul would tell you, I wish my testimony was more like yours. I grew up in the church. I never knew a of a time in my life when I didn't believe in Jesus, that I didn't know that God loved me and I didn't in some way express my love for God, although when I was confronted that you have to choose, this isn't an automatic thing. It was an easy choice for me to make. But that's not to say I don't and haven't struggled with sin in my life. I mean, we grow up in a a culture that influences us whether we want it to or not. And I grew up in a culture that was wildly profane, was certainly violent at times, and was racist. And those things affect you, and you have to overcome the sin in your life, but you can't do it on your own. All of us need spiritual transformation. And so what I want to suggest we learn from reading the Scripture is this. The starting point of spiritual transformation is encountering Jesus. He's the one that transforms us. Saul was angry at Christians. He wanted to eliminate all Christians. He wanted to arrest all Christians. If necessary, he wanted to kill Christians because he wanted to silence the message of the good news of Christ. And so whenever he's going to Damascus with his plans in hand, he encounters Jesus and it changes his life dramatically. And if we're going to experience spiritual transformation, let's understand that sometimes Jesus encounters us when we're not ready for it. Because if we were ready for it, you know what we would do, right? We clean ourselves up a little bit. Friends, I want to tell you, giving your life to Jesus isn't like selling your car. If you want to sell your car, you know what you got to do, right? You got to wash it, you got to wax it. Spray a little tire foam on there, get those tires shining so it looks good. You vacuum it, especially making sure you get the French fries from the Happy Meal that fell between the seat cushions or your seat in the console. You got to get that thing clean. Or if you were going to sell your house, what would you do? You start fixing your house up. You know, maybe you're going to take down this, you know, 25-year-old wallpaper and you're going to paint that wall instead. And, and maybe you're going to, you know, clean a little deeper. Maybe you're going to do some more landscaping on the outside. You're not going to show your house to somebody if it's got a big stain right in the middle of the living room carpet. And yet, when you encounter Jesus and you can't control that, that stain is there in the carpet whether you know it or not. And I would say if Jesus walks into your house and he says, whoa, check out the stain on this carpet, which in essence would mean you have a big stain in your heart. It doesn't mean that Jesus is trying to bring you down. He's trying to say, you know, I can take care of that stain. 
I can scrub that. I can get the grime out of it. In fact, I can even do better than that. I'm not going to take the stain out of your heart. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to transform your life so much you don't even recognize yourself anymore. People that have known you at your worst are going to wonder what happened to you. And it's because the starting point of your transformation is this encounter with Jesus. That's what we want to do. We want to see people's lives transformed. And, and sometimes the church is messed up in sharing this good news and we try to force that on people. And the reality is spiritual transformation is not something you can force. You can't force someone into spiritual transformation. There's a story told about a Boy Scout leader. He wanted to make sure when they had their honor court that the scouts were all ready to go. And so he told them, he said, when you come back next week, each one of you need to be able to report on a good deed that you have done. And so a week goes by and they come back and he says, so... What, what good deed have you done? And the first boy looks at him and he says, well, I helped a little old lady across the street. He said, okay, that's good, that's good. And he looked at the second boy and said, well, what did you do? He said, well, I helped him help that little old lady across the street. Now, perhaps that's appropriate. Maybe one helped her balance and one, you know, was carrying her package or whatever. You know, it made sense. So he looks at the third boy and he says, so what did you do? He said, well, I helped those two help that old lady across the street. Do you see a trend gathering here? <laughs> and then he looked at the fourth boy. He said, so what good deed did you do last week? He said, well, I helped those other three guys help that little old lady across the street. He goes, guys, come on. Why does it take four people to help a little old lady across the street? And the fourth boy replied, because she didn't want to cross the street. You can't force spiritual transformation on people. We don't like it when people try to cram something down our throats. We do not want to cram something down somebody's throat. We do not want to pressure people in such a way that they would make a commitment to Christ that they would end up resenting because they felt like it was forced on them. We witness to the good news. We share the good news. We invite people to experience the good news. And sometimes they will slap us and threaten to kill us, but we will not force them to do something they're not ready to do. The church is a gathering of people whose lives have been spiritually transformed. That starts with the encounter with Jesus, but it is not something that is forced upon us. The next thing I would want us to understand is that spiritual transformation does not happen all at once. It's a process. Now, this is a place we have to dig just a little bit deeper into the Scripture than what we normally would because if you read Acts chapter 9, and we cut it off at 19a, but if we'd have kept reading 19b and into verse 20, it says that after these scales fell from Paul's face and his blindness, that... Um, Immediately, he began to share the good news. Now, I want to suggest to you that I have no doubt that Paul, or Saul, sorry, Saul is his Arabic name, Paul is his Greek name. That's why we get both names. Saul, I have no doubt, began to tell people, wow, this is what happened to me. However, when we read Galatians, a letter that Paul writes to the region of churches, and he shares his story he tells them that he went down into Arabia 
after his experience in Damascus. Some Bible scholars suggest he may have been in Arabia for as long as 18 years before he comes back to Damascus. And then he's in Damascus for three years before he goes on to Jerusalem. The reason he goes to Jerusalem is because the people in Damascus want to kill him for testifying to the good news of Jesus Christ. His transformation did not happen all at once. It happened immediately, but it continued to happen. For once he was someone who hated Jesus, now he's someone who loves Jesus. Once he wanted to take care of those who were following Jesus, now he's trying to lead people to Jesus. Once he was physically blind, now he can physically see. Once he was unbaptized, now he's baptized. There are things that happen immediately, but the grace of God as he experienced it continued to transform his life. And so often that's how it works with us. You know, I, I love that my friend Paul can tell you when he was a cocaine addict and he came to faith in Christ that God delivered him from that. But there are a lot of addicts who would say, I've had relapse and rehab, relapse and rehab, trying to beat this addiction. It doesn't always happen all at once. Sometimes if we think of, you know, colorful language that perhaps we use that did not honor God, some people can quit that immediately when they come to faith in Christ, but others, you know, every now and then they'll have to say, pardon my language. The transforming work of Christ in our lives is a process that goes on the entirety of our lives. I remember Jimmy. Jimmy was a farmer down in southwest Oklahoma. He always went to church. And uh, his youngest child, his uh, second daughter, uh, had married a guy that had plans on being a preacher. He was still working on his education. The family moved around a lot from church to church. And whenever they would move, Jimmy would have to foot the bill because they were poor. After a while, his son-in-law decided he, he didn't think ministry was what he needed to do. In fact, he kind of took on a lifestyle that was opposite of what we might anticipate a pastor would do. He left ministry. He changed his lifestyle. Ultimately, it ended up in a divorce between this man and Jimmy's daughter. Jimmy was hot. He was angry. He was bitter. And the bitterness didn't go away easily. Even as he continued to follow Jesus, he was angry. Some years later, Jimmy went to a funeral, and his former son-in-law was there. They kind of stayed on opposite sides of the room. And so it was that after the funeral was over, after the graveside, Jimmy wanted to talk to the man. And so he kind of chased him down, and he said, I want you to know that for years I've harbored a grudge in my heart against you. The way you treated my daughter, the way you treated my grandchildren, I've been so angry at you. I've thought thoughts that people shouldn't think. I've said things that I regret. I want you to know I'm deeply sorry and I hope you can find it in your heart to forgive me. Jimmy was in his 70s when that happened. 
And the man was relieved that there wasn't going to be some awkward confrontation and he apologized and he asked Jimmy to forgive him too. Jimmy lived a good life well into his 90s and I was asked to do his funeral. And so it was, it, it was a small graveside gathering and that former son-in-law came to honor Jimmy. But Jimmy wasn't really his name. That's just what everybody called him. His name was actually Adrian Irie DeYoung, and his son-in-law's name was Donald Max Bennett, my grandfather and my father. That's why my name is Donald Adrian Bennett. And I saw in my grandfather that God never quits working in our lives no matter how long we follow after him. And I saw in my dad, who had his own struggles with faith, that God would never stop working in his life. And friends, as long as you have breath in your lungs, the grace of God seeks to transform our lives. If you've given up on yourself and just saying, I can never beat this, I want you to know God has not given up on you. If you're someone who has had your struggles of faith and you hear that voice of deception saying, God doesn't want anything to do with you, it's not the voice of God. God's voice is always... We're going to get that stain out of your heart. I'm going to give you a new one. I can't force it on you. You need to participate in this process. But the church is a place of spiritual transformation. What's God speaking to you today? Is God calling you to a place where maybe like Terry, you understand, I really need to give myself to Christ because it will change who I am. Maybe you're more like my grandfather, that you haven't given up, and the things that you have carried in your heart that are not the things God wants there. God's saying, let me take that from you. And I know the argument. The argument is, but God, I've given you that time and time and time again. And God's going to look at you and say, yeah, I know. But I'll take it again. Let me have it. Let me change you. Let me transform your life. It's amazing grace how sweet the sound. Would you all pray with me?